One, life after McConnell. Living off the grid. And wearing pull-up diapers to the age of five. A conversation with chicken farmer Pete Hegseth. Two, who cares if your facilities are bad? Who cares about the owner as long as you're winning Super Bowls? A survey from the NFL PA. And three, political kids and quote-unquote Christian nationalism with our lunch break panel, Hannah Cox and Joe Concha. It is the Will Kane Show streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel, on the Fox News Facebook page, and on demand at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast for your audio enjoyment. Just hit subscribe. Or always available on video on YouTube. Will Kane Show. Hit subscribe. We have a jam-packed show today with guests and topics ranging from Christian nationalism to whether or not your kid should be wearing a diaper at the age of five. So let's jump right into it with the resignation later this year of Mitch McConnell. Story number one. He is my co-host on Fox and Friends Weekend. He is my co-host of both Off the Wall and Off the Grid within Fox and Friends. And he is my co-host every other week here on the Will Kane show with what we should probably brand off the rails. What's up, man? Well, I like it. I like it. That's official. Off the rails with Pete Hegseth. Off the rails. Yep. Done. I like you it, name- too. I like it. Let's start with Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader who has been in the Senate Mm, most of our lifetime has been leading yes. the Senate for decades um, is said he's going to resign later this year, Pete. You know, th- this is an interesting one in that, you know, much of the right is sort of, I don't know, celebrating uh, moving on from Mitch McConnell. And you can understand why he is a symbol of inside Washington, D.C. politics. Um, his ideology on the right seems to be of yesterday, not necessarily in touch with the Republican Party of today. But I do wonder, like, I wonder what this means um, for Republicans. I mean, who comes next? But I got this other thing, Pete, like, I don't know if we fully understand the job that is Senate Majority Leader and what's been done for the past couple of decades by Mitch McConnell. What has been done? I mean, so that's a fair question. There's a lot behind the scenes that we're not familiar with. You know, most folks don't know this. I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill for probably three or four years of my life. Over the course of three or four years, spent a lot of time meeting with folks like Mitch McConnell, like John, like uh, John Cornyn, like John Thune, like John McCain, like Lindsey Graham, like time and time and time again. It was usually about uh, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the troops, troop funding or the VA. And so you you learn quickly where the real power is. You meet with enthusiastic young senators and young reps that are right there with you. None of it matters unless the guy at the very tippy tippy top of the committee or the conference is on your side. That's really all that matters across Washington. And so all the power really does become consolidated in one person and the view of that one person who spent their whole life getting to that one place where they can make all the calls. And Mitch McConnell was one of the very best at that from fundraising and campaigning and everything, just like Nancy Pelosi, one of the very best, meaning the caucus was beholden to Mitch McConnell for reasons that were below the surface that the electorate never understood. So you can have all these young bucks that are much more aligned with MAGA or America First or Trump. But they have no institutional power compared to what Mitch McConnell has. My issue with him as a conservative is the way in which he wielded institutional power, which looked a lot more like establishment Republicanism or Democrat light or really good in the opposition, but then really weak on the offense. Uh, And the one takeaway I would I mean, the one really bright spot was his blocking of Merrick Garland, which took a really big set of cojones to prevent uh, Barack Obama from appointing a Supreme Court justice. And instead, um, Donald Trump was able to. And it changed forever the constitution of the court. So I do think this is a huge turning of the page. But who gets picked next will tell us whether or not it's still an institution run by the cloakroom or whether it's an institution which reflects the base of the Republican Party. And that's going to come down to half a dozen to a dozen senators who sit at that inflection point, which is not the Freedom Caucus and not the establishment leadership 
who have to decide which direction they're going to go to and whether they think it'll affect their election prospects vis-a-vis a primary challenge in the future on the Republican side. That's my thought. Well, OK, I don't think I, I don't think I'm playing devil's advocate, but I'm just I'm trying to be a realist. So um, there is no doubt that Mitch McConnell ideologically represents the Republican Party of yesterday. But I think it's pretty unassailable that he represented that version of Republicanism very um, successfully inside the Senate. Like everyone says, I mean, you, you pointed to Merrick Garland, right? No one knows, for example, parliamentary procedure. And that's not just simply like, oh, you know, Robert's order of business or whatever. Like he knew how to use the Senate in a way to accomplish victories. And the, like you point out the cloakroom, like just he seems to know exactly how the clock is put together and how everything how one wheel spins the other wheel and therefore where you can find your victories within the process. And I do wonder um, if you don't need somebody like that on your team. Now, there's a separate debate about whether or not Mitch McConnell is on the team of modern day Republican movement or conservative movement. That's a separate debate. But I do like if you were drafting your team, like I don't think anybody's saying, hey, I want Mitch McConnell to be my president. No. But do you need a Mitch McConnell on your team? It is like your offensive coordinator who can draw up plays, who understand the Senate, by the way, to your point, is kind of supposed to be that cloakroom in a way. What do they call it? The cooling saucer of democracy or something like that. Like it's not supposed to reflect populist um, sentiment. It's that's why we have six year terms for the senators. Like they should be principle oriented. Those principles being foundational, obviously. And I just kind of wonder, like you point out Merrick Garland I just wonder, like, whoever it is, I I think you need somebody with a similar skill set as Mitch McConnell. Yes, but you want him to be like a a gangster for the cause. And that's never what it really felt like with Mitch McConnell. It felt like somebody. And I'm just I'm looking here right now at kind of how how long he's been. He was in the minority for a long time or the majority whip. But he was really only the majority leader, meaning he, he was able to drive what was happening in the Senate from 2015 to 2021, which is basically the term of Donald Trump, half of which he spent fighting Donald Trump, and the other half of which was spent trying to get an Obamacare repeal, which ultimately failed with the John McCain thumbs down vote in the Senate. So how affect, when you look at policies that change the lives of American people, of the American people or the trajectory of our republic, what's the stamp of Mitch McConnell? Okay, so you've been in the halls of power for 20 years as a leader with the gavel. How did my life get better? Did the debt, did, did you address the debt? Did you, you know, uh, properly adjudicate foreign wars? Did you protect our border? Did you pass massive tax cuts? Did you give me my money back? I don't see big wins. Now, he would point around and say, well, you have no idea what we forestalled. Like, my tactics held right. back. And he might be right. He might be right. But we feel like, I feel like we're we're at a moment where simply being an establishment conservative that attempts to to hold back the bad isn't sufficient because there's so much bad. And that's why I like what Trump represents. And you'd want a majority leader in the Senate, should they get the majority, that reflects that, that's prepared to wield power that undoes Washington power as opposed to is a part of it. Oh, I think that's a, so I think you've, you stum- you stumbled upon it. I don't mean to suggest <laughs> you stumbled. my best you, work. You, you accurately targeted it. No, you really put it well. So what I hear, so maybe Mitch McConnell can be best characterized as somebody who was very well suited to play defense. You know, and in, in a way, that was conservatism. Conserv- you know, William F. Buckley Correct. founded National Review with the motto of standing athwart history yelling stop. And by that conceding that the inevitable march of history is toward progressivism. And the role of conservatism is to, in the spirit of traditionalism, say, hold on, you're upsetting the apple cart. Hold on, you're going too fast, right? But it, it, it does um, suggest, it kind of like grants the theory of the inevitable march. And so Mitch McConnell might have been effective playing defense and yelling stop to some degree, whereas you point out, like, he, he, he steps into majority leader with Donald Trump, and, and now he can play offense, and he keeps playing defense against Donald Trump. Correct. I would, yes, very uh, much better said and more succinctly. 
I think we're at a moment where I would like my executive and Donald Trump to say, I'm hereby decertifying the Department of Education. And then he's got an ally in the Senate that says, and we're instead of funding the Department of Education, we're going to block grant that to the states. Who in this caucus is with me? Because we're done with this garbage. It's not working at the federal. I think we need a, a radical conservative who's willing to say big changes are needed right now if we're going to reorient the ship of state, not nipping at the margins of how we used to do business in a slightly different way because we're Republicans and we're in charge now. I just don't think that's Mitch McConnell. I don't know if that's who will replace him either, but I'd like to like it to be somebody that would sit in the White House with a Trump administration and say, we have a moment in time that we'll probably never see again. Our republic is on the brink. We're going to be criticized either way. What are the most drastic measures we can take that get us back uh, in the direction we should be headed? And I want to be an ally in that, not an opponent. You know, when I was thinking about Mitch McConnell, the the analogy that I was thinking about bringing up with you is is LBJ. Like, LBJ, by most estimations, was a bad president. I placed him on one of my five worst presidents. I think I did the, la- the list last week, like, worst presidents in American history. And LBJ made the top five. But by most accounts, he was a very effective senator. And what I mean by that is, if he's on your team... He's getting it done. And I started to think like, well, we need a guy like Mitch McConnell on our team. But the thing about it is, the difference is, LBJ was on offense as a senator. And he got things done, like, for his cause. And it made me think, have you ever heard, Pete, LBJ ordering pants? (laughs) No. No. Sounds great, though. Okay. He's president of the United States. I'm going to try this, okay? I want you to listen. I've... Um, it's a two and a half minute call of him ordering pants and I'm 50 seconds in. We'll play like 30 seconds because I think this is gold. Like you got to hear LBJ ordering a pair of pants from a Dallas pant maker. He's in the white house. Uh, uh, Hager pants. You probably remember Hager like khakis yeah. and uh, like, here he is. He's calling Hager. Listen to this. So uh, leave me at least two and a half, three inches in the back where I can let them out or take them up and put, make these a half inch bigger in the waist, make the pockets at least an inch longer. Money, my money and my knife and everything fall out. Wait just a Hello? Hello. Now, another thing that crunch down where your nuts hang is always a little too tight. So when you make them up, give me an inch that I can let out there uh, because they cut me. It's just like riding a uh, wire fence. These are almost these are the best that I've had anywhere in the United States. Right. But uh, uh, when I gain a little weight, they cut me under there. So <laughs> leave me. Uh, you never do have much margin there. Let's see if you can't leave me about an inch from the, where the zipper ends uh, around uh, under my back to my bunghole. Uh, <laughs> what? Where in the world? <laughs> Please tell me how this applies to Mitch McConnell. You are a piece of work. <laughs> oh, because they were senators, effective senators, perhaps. One on defense and one on offense. <laughs> LBJ, this is a man, by the way, when you hear that clip, which I've listened to it so many times in my life, literally in the seat of power. Like, this is a man, he does not, how about the burps in the middle of it? And uh, mm-hmm. worried about, the pants being too tight in his bunghole. I mean, you know, you have you heard the stories about him pulling his cabinet staff into the john with him while yes, he's I seated. Have heard those stories. He's yes. seated on yes. the throne. You talk about Washington D.C. cloakroom power now ascending to the heights of the White House. This is a man who is feeling his power. That doesn't feel. It doesn't feel like Mitch McConnell would do that, but it does feel like he probably he had it. it it feels, I don't know this for certain, but I've dealt with this office. I mean, Mitch McConnell relishes the ability to keep his flock in in check, uh, more so than drive the overall direction of the Senate and legislation getting passed, which is what felt like more like what an LBJ was able to do. And we got to listen think, to his bunghole tape. I think you're right. All right, let's move to this. On Fox & Friends and our segment Off the Grid, we talked about Americans turning to hunting, turning to farming as a way to combat inflation, the rising price of food. Food is now the highest since 1991, 11% of disposable income for Americans. And then uh, you showed some of your eggs on air because mm-hmm. you're now a chicken farmer and mm-hmm. you're living Absolutely. off the grid. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> Amateur. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I am. Tell uh, the now, audience. Hold on. You rattled off a lot of great got owned by a rooster. about inflation. You did. And and it does. By the way, we didn't get into all of that. Like the chicken food is expensive. So it's not clear we're actually making out uh, financially by doing for, for a lot of people, whether it's inflation or it's sort of the general instability of life or it's going back to your roots. It's going back to understanding how we've talked about this. Produce things, make things, do things on your land with your hands, with tools, with skills, things that are forgotten often in the modern era. So people who are doing those things often start with chickens, which we started with, and we started with zero knowledge, as you know, as I've shared with you, very little knowledge, a little bit of internet knowledge and my neighbor's knowledge, and they said, you can't mess it up. And so uh, I don't know if you want me to tell the whole story. I can tell it quick. I do, uh, because you did mess it up. You got owned by a rooster. Until I got owned until by two you, roosters. You brought out the nine. So we until got you, uh, until you brought out the nine millimeter. Nine chick. We got nine chickens for our nine. The nine of us in the family, and we thought they were all hens. That was the idea because you're supposed to get hens because hens lay eggs, and you don't need roosters. You need them in the wild because they scare off prey, but you don't need them in a docile environment. Well, turns out three of them turned out to be roosters, and one of them <laughs> was the king rooster. And the rooster and rooster's going to do and, and the rooster must have went through puberty, you know, because they go through puberty. And once they go through puberty, they have a desire to do things with the females and defend the females. And they get very territorial about their females. But it turns out three roosters and six hens is a really bad ratio. They're not getting a, enough of the nookie. And so they get really <laughs> frustrated and they come after the humans. And so my kids, the whole idea was to give my kids an experience to go in and collect eggs. And pretty soon they're coming back to the house with these like, like, like gripping combat stories of going in and trying to get the eggs as the roosters are flapping at them and pecking at them and clawing at them. And they're like, I don't want to go collect the eggs anymore. It's mortifying. And so I go down there and I start getting attacked and I tried to, I gave them the woodshed treatment, you know, kick them around a bunch of times and try to show them who's boss. And that worked for a couple of weeks. They saw tall man, don't mess with tall man, but they would still mess with the little kids that went in for the eggs. And so I asked my neighbor, I said, what should I do? He said, if you release them, then I'm just going to have to kill them. I said, what do I do? Do I pluck them? He said, well, you should pluck them yourself. I mean, it's a whole, I looked into a lot of different options. And it became, I called local places to process two roosters. He said, what, what are you talking about? We don't process one rooster, two. You do it yourself. You know, no one was going to do it for me. It was either, and it was clear it was not in the cards for me to pluck and clean a chicken at this point. Maybe we'll get there. So I went down to kill it. Two of them. They were too very aggressive. So I wanted to have one rooster left because it was the beta rooster with the six hens. It would protect them but not attack the kids. That's the idea. And it would have a good ratio so it could do its thing with them. And then I would buy two more hens to replace and everything would be fine. Well, I went down to try to kill them and it was really hard. You're supposed to try to grab them by the neck and swing them around and then you crack their neck and then they, they die. That's what the neighbor told me, neighbor Frank. And yeah. I couldn't get them. Yeah. I couldn't get them. I tried, I tried, it wasn't. Couldn't catch Then him. I said, I'll stun them with a spade shovel. And so I tried to stun them with a spade shovel to get knock them down and then go for the neck and twist them around. Except I, I hit them, but it didn't work. And I wasn't gonna try to cut their head off. <laughs> I, so I was stunning them, but it wasn't stunning them enough for me to get them. And there were two of them, and then they would run into the coop and huddle on each other and protect each other, and I felt bad for them. Like, it was, this was a traumatizing experience for everybody, and I don't like to harm animals yes. that I don't have to harm. So, finally, I'm like, I came upstairs, and I'm like, babe, I, 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 I think I need to shoot them. I think that's the only way to do it. So I went down there with my 9 mil, and I just, I washed them out of the coop. I ran in there and pushed them out. And then you had to run. It's, it was not cool looking. You think it's gangsters. I'm like running around over here, trying to get them in the corner. I'm trying to get the hands away from the roosters. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I get close enough. And, I'm like, bam, bam, and it, it was it took about four shots. How many each. shots does it? Four shots each it took about four shots each. Yeah. To get them where I needed them. And then they still got the twitch. How many of those shots hit? What? They're, they're quick. How many of those they're shots quick. hit? I mean, you I missing? hit with all four, but. It, it was, it took them to make sure they were down, you know? I, and you killed both? I killed two of them, yeah. And then I, I gave them mm. a proper, I said a prayer over them, you know, and uh, <laughs> and discarded of them into the wilderness. I let the woods eat them. I checked on them the next day, and the, I'm sure the coyotes got to them. We got a bunch of coyotes out here. So, uh, oh, and then there's this... all, has, all has been fine since. There's this country song that I love called... Um, 
Gallo de Cielo. It's about a fighting rooster, and he's got a he's got one eye rolling around in his head. And I just picture, but he can't be beat in a in a in a cockfight. He can't be beat, and he's like this famous rooster. And but he's all you know, he's all jacked from all his fighting. And I just picture this this rooster who got hit with a spade shovel with one eye rolling around his head. Bill, I'm telling you, he crazy. took shots that no human could take, and he bounced right back. And he looked at me and he'd come right back for more. I and mean, it was it was intimidating. Now I see what cockfighting's about, like why people would do it. Because these roosters, they get up, they get big, they get their necks going, they get the whole thing going, and they look gnarly. <laughs> and uh, the kids were done. They were done. And the whole point is to let the kids experience it. Not be a, My mom's terrified of chickens because she grew up on a chicken farm, a real chicken farmer, like hundreds and thousands of chickens. I did not. So I'm going back to my roots with seven chickens. It's going great. That's Man, great. get a donkey. Get a donkey. That's my big sales push to Pete. I've been saying it. We just get put in the horse fence. We're going with horses, and we're thinking we're looking for a donkey too. You've given me that advice from the beginning, and I donkeys it's eventually going to be, be great. part of it. You're never going to regret that donkey. Even when he yells, you're going to love it. It's going to be. I hilarious. love the sound. Of, you're I love laugh the sound of the time. roosters. Come on. I mean, I the roost sound of the rooster. It's two things to me. It's just a wonderful sound. And then it also takes me as a good Christian, and I, as my name is Peter, and so every time I hear the rooster crow, I'm reminded that I deny Jesus every day, and I need him. It's a good <laughs> reminder out in the country. From a rooster? The rooster reminds me. <laughs> Absolutely, because the rooster crow reminded Peter that he denied Jesus three times. So, oh, look at that. Yeah. Here I am yeah. telling you to get a donkey, because you're going to have an on-farm comedian every time you go outside. <laughs> He's just going to make you laugh. It's going to be great. <laughs> All right, it. let's move to this. Um, there is a story in Parents Magazine. It, it cites a, a research article from Pediatrics um, that delayed milestones from the CDC. CDC has set milestones for children, and they've become, they're delaying them. So, like, when a child should crawl, when a child should acquire linguistic capabilities, language, um, they're delaying it. And then there was... Um, there was also uh, someone who noticed that Pampers or Huggies or somebody is now advertising um, pull-up diapers for kids up through the age of 6T. So that's six years old, right? Yes, toddlers. Mm-hmm. They're calling a six-year-old a toddler. Um, right. I have a six-year-old daughter diapers. right now. So you're telling me my six-year-old daughter would still be potentially wearing pull-ups? Uh, when did the kids stop? Like two, right? If I remember correctly, one and a half? One I don't even girls, remember. Little girls, they're like, this is gross. I'm done. At like, you know, one, one and a half sometimes. Yeah. What do you think this is about? I have a theory. I want to hear, I your, hear theory. your theory. Your theories are always, uh, they provide a good launching point. What is your theory? All right. You may not like it. Okay. So here's where my mind went on this. So first of all, there is a scientific correlation between the intelligence level of a species and its level of childhood and gestation. So human beings have the longest gestation, right? Like other animals spit yep. spit their offspring out really quick. And then those offspring take a horse, right? Which you'll soon know about. He's up and walking that day. You know, he's he's up and running. And he's gangly for a little bit. But, you know, the longer... So, but monkeys and children and things with higher level intellects and as we get longer lifespans, take longer to arrive into, first of all, um, life on the ground and then adulthood. And I do wonder, as we sort of progress into longer lifespans, and I think I think that we are in a, a superior intellectual state than we were, say, 200 years ago, um, or at least we have much more, a much greater wealth of information and knowledge. I don't know about the growth in wisdom, but we, we definitely... Are working on a higher intellectual plane. I do wonder, I don't want my kid around in pull-ups till five or six, but I do wonder if this isn't what will happen. Like the length of childhood gets longer. Um, and maybe it's not such a bad thing. I think that's the dumbest you've ever said, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone who heard that is now dumber. For having heard it, I reward you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Uh, I got another point. I'm gonna double down. Okay, please. How about this? I'm gonna get some agreement on this. Um, men develop at an incredibly slow rate. 
and we are beginning to understand that men don't have full frontal lobe development. You know, the, the number they put it at is like age 25. It's not a hard line, but it's later than you think. Right. And we go out into society. You know, here we are making career decisions, what we um, what we major in. I mean, hell, who we marry before we even are fully developed in our frontal lobe. And um, maybe we should start thinking about like taking gap years, being more patient with men. Um, Don't go straight to college or, you know, after college, don't go right off into your career, whatever it may be. Like we need to start accepting that that some level of development. And I know this is not like I don't want kids to be adolescents until they're 30 but we need to acknowledge that this happens with you remember it like when the clouds part for you and it wasn't 18 it's not 17 when you start kind of going oh that's the consequence of my actions now i'm not making this as an argument to wear pull-ups until you're five but i am saying that, that there is something to this like becoming an adult might take a little longer than we think i think it's uh i always what appreciate do you say to willingness to explore are you dumber which i what? Uh, no, here we go. I was going to see if you said, I just made you dumber again. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. I always appreciate your willingness to explore. I really do. I think the devolution of men, or especially of men, let's stick to men here, for, uh, but it could, it could apply in both directions. It, the devolution of men is a reflection of a la- lack of a foundation not being ex- instilled earlier and earlier through almost every single institution. And I'm not trying to just make a stupid everybody gets a trophy argument. I'm really not because I'm dealing with the same thing. And you are, too. Like, we're trying to raise boys that will become men in a society that treats them a lot differently than it would have, say, 80 years ago or 50 years ago when a 17 year old would be begging to be to be 18 so he can go fight in World War Two. Like, that's a really, really Mm -hmm. different mentality and get married in the And yeah, absolutely. It's a very different mentality. But I think that those young men were raised with an ethos, an ethos from their dads and from the church and from the the Rotary Club or from whatever that sort of said, this is what men do. Men work, men protect, men have an honor code, men live by a standard, and men take risks and men explore and this is who we and and so they that was just part of who you were growing up and what your your dad probably didn't tell you that they loved you even though i tell my kids i love them all the time and there was just a totally different way in which you were raised which led to by default you're growing up and and so we do small things now where i think i'm bold because i tell my kids not to wear helmets when they're biking you know, which is such a reduction of a, you know, but I do make them wear helmets when they're driving their dirt bikes. You know, that probably wasn't the case 40 years ago. You know what I mean? I mean, so 40 years in the 80s, it would go. So we're all softer. We're all more in touch mm-hmm. with our feelings. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think that slows down the historical maturity of men, which I don't think is good because I think the longer that men wander, um, there, the more we all wander because men have a charge to, to lead and to build and to protect. And the more they don't take that mantle, the more everything floats and it takes more time for bad ideas and bad structures to take place underneath it. So, I mean, diapers for six year, I mean, that's a, that's parents having issues. Uh, but yeah, I, I, tried I do out. think not the diapers, we, the theory. We just bubble, we just bubble wrap. And I don't, I don't think we're getting smarter. I think we're getting dumber, Will. That's where your, that's where your theory falls apart. Like we're, men are getting more in touch with their feelings when the feet, your feelings are the thing that, that, that guide you with the least amount of reliability. I know that's the case in my life for the most part. It, It is, it is forged, um, intuitions and, and principles and virtues that, took longer than they should for most of us. But if there had been more intentional and institutional investment in creating those things, maybe it would have come about sooner. All right. Um, I'm arriving at a, at a, I'm arriving at a middle ground here. Um, it has nothing to do with diapers. Um, no. th- this is what I'm thinking. Um, okay. Just because it, let's acknowledge reality. It does take men a long time. 
to have the clouds part. Whether or not that means frontal lobe development or whatever that is scientifically, I don't know. But you probably remember the rough range for you in your life, Pete. And I, I can tell you mine. Mine's 20. It, it was 25, but I think somewhat coincidentally. So what I think that means is um, just have patience. You should still, like, I'm, I, I say I'm not raising boys. I say I'm raising men, right? I said to one of my yep. sons last night, because yesterday was a big day, and let's, because we had some parent teacher conferences, and there was a lot <laughs> going on yesterday here in, in the household of Cain. I got to um, hear about that this week. And weekend. I said, look, you have to fill me in. Yeah. I, I, I said to one of my sons last night, I'm, I'm raising you to be a man and how to be the best man you can be. But I also need to have grace and patience. So on the other hand, I think that's what my takeaways is. Have patience because it takes time and they're not finished products at the age of 13 or 12. You know, so just understand that. But second, here's when the clouds parted for me. Okay, uh, my dad died when I was 25. Okay, before that, I'm living on a ranch in Montana. Okay, let's be real. I'm living on a ranch in Montana being a cowboy. A cowboy. And um, after that, Big stark change. Grow up now. Grow up now. Go start your career. Go adhere to responsibilities outside of your own ambition or desire. And so I think those moments, you talk about how it used to be. Kids or men would have experienced those moments that force you into adulthood quicker when you're confronted with more risky aspects of life that are somewhat insulated from our kids today. So what I think is the answer is while you have patience with kids and you're growing them and encouraging them to become men, also at the same time, taking risks that force you into moments of becoming an adult and being a war fighter is one of those things, you know, yeah. but also being that was an around adventurer. 25 for me too. There's no doubt that was a, that was a massive turn, but don't you think, I mean, do you think you would have benefited from five more years on a ranch or do you think you no. benefited? No. Right. So I think our kids will benefit just like I benefited from going to combat. And I think our kids would benefit from a man in their life saying it's time to grow up. Like put away childish things like there are there's a moment at which it doesn't mean it has to be at 18 or 20 or 24 or whatever. But but it, it in, in my case, it was war. And in another case, it was tragedy for you. There are reasons that those things happen. But I think in in history, it's been a lot more of a man or a parent in their life saying now is time now get out of the house and go figure it out there. and provide. And we get That's a lot it. of parents cocooning saying live near yes. me with me on me as long as you want and then you just delay that so what i that's exactly what i'm talking about like look my event is something that happened to me your event is something you chose to do so i think what my takeaway is like encourage your kids to go take risks because those risks and it doesn't have to be a warfighter but it, i mean that's go go start a business when you're 18 or 19 doesn't have to be and a warfighter Go, just go out and try and do and build and work and do fail something. Yes. Yeah. And then you become a man. You become, that's helps part the clouds. All right. I think we arrived at that. Now let's end on an extremely juvenile conversation. Um, music. So my 16-year-old, and you can judge me. By the way, I, I wouldn't begrudge you or anybody watching or listening um, judging me. I stopped listening to rap music in about 1995, Pete. Um, I think most dudes listen to rap at some point. Mine was probably high schoolish to early college. You didn't listen to rap college. at all in college? A little, but that's when I made full transition to country. And and like I'm talking about like West Coast, like Dr. Dre, you know, um, Ice Cube. And I was telling my boys, rap was better than like, I don't know, whatever they're doing now where they just machine gun words at me. I'm not into it. Right. And, and I just have this conception. And my son, um, says to me, he listened to some, and by the way, none of it's appropriate. And I went back and listened to it and it's vulgar. And I'm not just saying that as a prude, it's not because I'm listening to some new rap now. That's where we're going with this. And I don't like the vulgarity, not just as a prude. I think it makes it shallow like very shallow in an unappealing way. And so when I listen to some of that old rap, I'm like, it's shallow musically and it's shallow message-wise, right? It just doesn't have any depth to it. But my son's like, new rap is way better. And he had me start listening to Kanye. And I got to tell you something. He's a genius. It's, it's next level. 
And I, Pete, I've tried a few other things. Lawrence Jones told me to listen to J. Cole or Kendrick Lamar, and I tried some of that, and it's pretty, okay. But I'm telling you something about Kanye West. And by the way, some of it's real shallow still. It's braggadocious, and it's vulgar, and it's a lot of cuss words, and, and I get all that. If it turns you off too much, I would understand. It does me sometimes. I'm like, no, we're not listening to that. And it does make me think, why are my sons familiar with these songs and listen to this stuff? But musically, Pete, Kanye's a genius. Interesting. Uh, you got to send me whatever song you're referring to. Uh, I, I, I agree. When I go back and look at the 90s or 2000s rap, you know, whatever, Ludacris, uh, Mace, Huff, D- P. Diddy, Snoop, all the stuff that Dr. Dre. You want to talk about P. Diddy today? Friend- what? <laughs> you want to talk about P. Diddy? We could talk about P. Diddy. You don't know. You pick it. Uh, it's okay. What, you, don't, like, you don't know. <laughs> what, what, what would I not know about P. Diddy? We're not going to. We can't do it. It's too. It's too. It's too much in the world of rumor and and allegations. Oh no, I don't have it. So, but I do. I okay. do know. Like, I've got a Kanye West song, "Flashing Lights," which probably doesn't qualify. And I know it's like uh-huh. 15 years ago, but I really like it. So it wouldn't surprise me if I like some of it. And I, I by the way, downloaded his entire Christian album, which he did. You know, I don't know what was it. Yeah, four years ago, five years ago. It's really good. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's obviously he's a he's a he's a is he doing like secular rap now too or is this the same stuff? Uh it, it all is pretty egotistical and and at times vulgar. But like good morning, homecoming, Jesus walks. My point is just like listening to it. It's enjoyable in a way that it has melody and production and harmony and it's like music. Where sometimes you listen to rap you're like it's just not music in in a in a you know enjoyable way. But it, yeah, I agree. You, I mean, I think, he's, Kanye, I, I think he's immensely talented. I had a moment in the car yesterday. My 10-year-old daughter is singing the lyrics to a rap song from, you know, a Sirius XM channel that I never listened to, but I think they listened to in the car on their way to school with their mother. Uh, and she has a little a little radio in her room that can tune the local radio stations that they've, you know, put out by the outside when they play outside a little bit. And I realized she knows the rap lyrics and I have no idea. And here I am, exactly where my parents were, as I'm humming some tune that I probably have no idea what the lyrics actually are. And that's what my wife says all the time. Your kids, usually the lyrics are going like this over the top of their head as we bemoan what they say. They're just like the tune yeah. and like the words. Um, I don't know what to do with that quite yet because I want to be a, a total grouch. Um, but my wife is trying to prevent that. I don't I don't I don't know. I'm I'm well, I've been stuck in. I've been stuck in country music, and not stuck. I love it for thirty years. So this is a new exploration for me, and just kind of. By the way, you can't protect your kids from it. There's nothing you can do. So good luck to you on that. Like, um, they're gonna hear it. They're gonna. So it's like anything else. Just talk to them about it or whatever. You gotta talk and to I'm trying to listen it. to what yeah, they're you're actually. Right. Yeah, you're right. And I'm trying to understand what they're listening to a little bit. Which even if they but should. like the rest right, of I think the we world, lived up when to Ludacris the came out uh, at the halftime show, you know, I was loving it. And so was so was every like white kid from suburbia uh, in the late '90s and early 2000s who loved Ludacris, but couldn't you know <laughs> didn't really know, yeah, and it couldn't relate. Uh, all right, I think I think we lived up to our billing. Off the rails today. Thank you, brother. Hexeth. Good to Thanks, see man. you. Thanks, man. All right, see you this weekend. There goes Pete Hexeth on the Will Kane Show. All right, coming up. Who cares if you have a good owner or a bad owner? Who cares about your facilities as long as you're living, you're winning the Super Bowl? Who cares about the NFLPA plus our lunch break panel? Coming up on The Will Cain Show. Who cares what your facilities are like? Who cares if your owner is popular as long as you're winning Super Bowls? It's The Will Cain Show. Streaming live at foxnews.com on the Fox News YouTube channel and the Fox News Facebook page. The NFLPA, the union that represents the players in the NFL, came out with a survey where they ranked organizations based upon the quality of their owner, the quality of their locker room, the quality of their weight room, their cafeteria. And coming in last place was the Kansas City Chiefs, dead last in the NFL. If you look through the survey... Organizations like the Cincinnati Bengals got basically F minuses and D's almost, not all the way, but very far across the board. Um, 
the organizations that did well are the Miami Dolphins with a lot of A's. The New Orleans Saints did poorly. Uh, the New York Giants did fairly poorly, except when it comes to ownership and coach. But as you go through this list, um, and everybody's wondering, Dallas Cowboys, of course, uh, pretty good grades for the Dallas Cowboys. A's and B's, but for training staff, which got like a D, D plus. But as you go through the list, there's no correlation between who's good and, according to the NFLPA, who treats their players good. Um, it reminds me of the story. When Mark Cuban bought the Dallas Mavericks, there were reports that he was going to invest in the visitor's locker room and put really plush towels in there with Mavericks insignia, and he didn't care if the towels disappeared, meaning the players could, visiting players could stuff them in their bags and take them home. I think it was robes, too. And the idea was that that experience and that logo that then hung in their home would serve as a free agency pull. Look how nice it is in Dallas. Look, It's pretty unassailable that through Mark Cuban's tenure, the Dallas Mavericks have been one of the worst organizations in the NBA at attracting free agents. As a Mavs fan, it's a constant lament. Why do players not choose to live in a tax-free state uh, with a winning organization, at least through most of that time? Why do they not choose to come there as a free agent? And what becomes clear is it has very little to do with how nice your cafeteria is. It has very little to do with the locker room. When LeBron James chose to team up with Chris Bosh and join Dwayne Wade in Miami for that super team, there were articles written about why it was that LeBron would choose to go there. Everyone hated it. It showed no loyalty. It showed, suggested he was a front runner. And of course, there was <clears throat> some appeal, I'm sure, to living in Miami. But there was an interesting article that suggested when you talk about workplace environment, the number one thing that everyone, everyone, superstars, you, me, want, is we want to work with our friends. We want to like our coworkers. I can tell you right now, it's the best thing about working at Fox & Friends. I, look, I never honestly considered myself a morning show host. I never thought, hey, this is what, well, maybe there was a time when I was like, Matt Lauer makes $20 million? Mm-hmm. Um, where I thought, oh, maybe that's, you know, maybe I'm a fit there. But as time went on and, you know, I offer up theories over things like delayed onset adulthood. By the way, Einstein didn't speak till he was three or four. Maybe I was right about intelligence delayed. Um, but as I offer up these kind of things, not exactly all the time morning television. But I love it. And I think that it is better because we love it that Pete and Rachel and I are such good friends. Like, it changes everything about the calculation of getting up at 4 a.m., of flying to New York, of doing something that I don't know exactly if it is tailored to my wheelhouse. But because I work with my friends, it makes it not just tolerable, it makes it great. And it's the same calculation for LeBron, joining up with Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade. In the end, superstars like somebody else, they just want to work with people that they like. Better yet, if you can, your friends. So you can invest in your training room, you can invest in your, your locker room, your cafeteria, and you can put out these surveys from the NFLPA, but in the end, what does it matter if A, it doesn't impact free agency, it doesn't impact where people choose to go to work, and B, it doesn't seem to have any correlation to winning. Kansas City Chiefs last in NFLPA survey. Kansas City Chiefs first in best organization in the NFL. What's it matter what it's like where you work? All right, coming up, let's talk about whether or not political kids are off-limits after Lauren Boebert's son is arrested on multiple counts for vehicle theft. Let's also talk about whether or not there is a rise in the United States of quote-unquote Christian nationalism with our lunch break panel. Coming up on The Will Cain Show. sure is odd that there's a rise in crime tied to illegal immigrants in the United States while there is a drop in crime in Venezuela. It's the Will Cain Show streaming live at foxnews.com on the Fox News YouTube channel, Fox News Facebook page, on demand, Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast, Will Cain Show on YouTube. Hit subscribe. Let's discuss crime and illegal immigrants 
Christian nationalism, and whether or not political kids should be off-limit with our lunch break panel. Joining us today is Fox News contributor Joe Concha and the president and co-founder of Based Politics, Hannah Cox. What's up, guys? Glad to have you on The Will Cain Show. Happy Thursday, Will. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Joe, we'll start with you. Lauren Boebert's son, Lauren Boebert, the Republican congresswoman from Colorado, her son, Tyler, 18 years old, has been arrested in Colorado facing 22 charges in connection to a spate. That's, a, that's such a newspaper word. Who says yeah. spate? A spate of things. <laughs> but I'm reading this headline. A spate of vehicle break-ins and property theft. It's The details in their allegations, their, um, their charges right now, are, are pretty... They're not good, Joe. I mean, this, this kid was doing some bad stuff. But in response to that, um, kind of eye-opening, some people saw... Pennsylvania Democrat Senator John Fetterman say, hey, this is a family in a crisis and a recreational cruelty that I see on social media needs to be out of bounds, saying how he understands this, how it impacts children. Basically saying, hey, this is not fodder for your either partisan or recreational social media or television yeah. usage. What do you think about what, what Fetterman said? Well, two things to unpack there. One, you're right about spate. As a writer and just in television in general, don't use words you would never use at a happy hour. That, that's just it. No one uses the word spate when talking about anything. So let's just get that out of the way. Right. As far as Fetterman, I, I love this reboot of John Fetterman, the, the guy who stands up for Israel, the guy who implores Democrats to do more about border security, and now obviously standing up for Boebert because he is right. They are a family in crisis. Now, I, I sometimes hear about these comparisons between, well, look at what Lauren Boebert's son is doing and look at what Joe Biden's son is doing as far as Hunter Biden. I'm, I'm not sure that's an apples to apples comparison because Lauren Boebert's son, he's still a teenager, right? He's only 18 years old. Hunter Biden is a grown man in his 50s. Uh, plus, Boebert's son didn't enrich himself and his family to the tune of millions using his father's name and influence in places like China, Ukraine, Russia, Romania, Kazakhstan, so on. So I, I think we're talking about high school age kids it should largely be left alone and not used as ammo against a lawmaker, in this case, Boebert, who has enough personal image problems of her own to overcome in this election. Uh, but when we saw late night comedians go after, say, Baron Trump, for example, when he was a kid, like 10, 11 years old, that was a whole bowl of wrong. So Fetterman's right here. I'm not saying you ignore the Boebert story because, yes, he was arrested and, and these are some fairly serious charges. But to start doing an end zone dance over it, that's a whole bowl of wrong. But I am having trouble drawing the line. I can easily distinguish uh, Hannah um, Tyler Boebert from Hunter Biden. We don't even need to spend time doing that. That's not even apples and oranges. That's a different ballgame altogether. Not just age, but allegations and the impact on our public life, meaning, you know, what Hunter's alleged to have done affects America and Americans in a way that is nece uh, necessary to discuss. But I still think, like, is what about Chelsea Clinton? You know, what about um, the Obama girls? Like, when is it that the the my gut instinct is political families and kids should be off limits. But there is a point at which they become part of the public discussion. Yeah, I think I can answer this. You know, my dad's not a politician, but he is a pastor. So I grew up very much in the public eye. And I've got to be honest, I had a lot of issues with it because kids need to be able to be kids. They need to be able to make mistakes. They need to be able to learn by their experiences. And it's not fair to judge them harsher than we do other kids who are growing up outside the limelight. And to a large extent, it's not fair to judge the parents because kids are going to rebel. They're going to do things the parents don't want them to do. Can it reflect on their parenting? Yes, to some degree, but to some degree, people are autonomous and they make decisions that grieve their parents oftentimes. So I really do think that we should mostly have kids off limits. The line to me is very clear. And it's when you have a situation like Hunter Biden, where the person who is in the public eye is complicit in the child's activities. They are participating in it. They are assisting them in it. They are using their position of power to help them get out of trouble and consequences that they might face for that kind of behavior. That's when I think it becomes fair game for us to discuss and actually to hold that person in the public eye accountable. Really? That's, that's a high bar, though, Hannah. I, I mean... Let me let me go back to you with this, Hannah. So, and I and I strive for consistency. I don't want to be a hypocrite. So, like, I th I've seen this argument made, and I, I don't I don't think it's without merit. If you like, ultimately, you have to show your ability. If you can't control your house, how can you control something bigger, right? So, you how do you control a state? 
How do you control a district? And control is the wrong word. Um, Adequately organize or lead or represent something if you can't do so in your own home. And by the way, I say that with humility. I had breakfast this morning with a friend, Hannah, where I was like, we talked about actually the limits of parenting. Like, and he was telling me how how much humility he's acquired. And he's like, if if I hadn't had the experiences that I've had, I might be more judgmental towards others on parents on parenting. And he was talking about just the humility he's he's acquired. And I think that's really virtuous. I also think there's something to be said about, does your household represent your ability to lead in other capacities? Mm-hmm. I mean, this actually came up quite a bit when I was growing up with my dad because he felt the same way and people in the church would feel the same way. If your kids are acting out, rebelling, or they're caught having a drink somewhere, doesn't that reflect on your leadership abilities? I, I think that, again, it's not really a fair bar whatsoever because it is natural for kids to rebel and push back and to test the limits at time. I really think you can't always tell the totality of a parent's style or impact as a parent until a kid's fully grown. You know, I have three siblings. We're all four or not fully grown. We're good kids. We never had major mess ups. My mom was even saying the other day, our family's been so lucky. None of you guys have ever really embarrassed us or done anything very wrong. Um, But, you know, I think that that takes a little bit of time. We certainly did things to embarrass them when we were in high school or college that they were dealing with privately behind the scenes. So I I wish really, if we really could have a utopia on this, I would say that people who have kids shouldn't be in the public eye. They really should avoid that until their kids are grown. I really think that, I mean, as somebody who grew up in that fishbowl, it was a really unhealthy environment in a lot of ways and not very fair for the kids. So especially when it comes to something like running for office, you can wait till the kids are 18 to put them in that kind of position. And I think it would really be wise for more parents to do that, actually. What do you think of that, Joe? No, no office holders until your kids are out of the house. No law, yeah, to be clear. Just best advice, practices. It, it's just a tough one, right? Uh, because you may already be well down that road. I didn't have kids. Well, I didn't, obviously. My wife didn't have kids until I was 42 years old. So, uh, and I was already well into being not a public figure. I'm, if there's something between D and E list, I, I think I'm somewhere around there. But I, I think that's just, that's hard uh, at this point. Let's say you're like Elise Stefanik and you're 37 years old, and then you're chosen to be a vice president. You're not going to say, no, choose me when I'm 55, when my kids are out of the, out of the, uh, house. So I, I, I completely agree with Hannah as far as that would be a nice scenario to have so you could separate the two. But the reality says that that would be hard for a lot of folks. All right, let's move to this. Um, so, you know, I always want to be sensitive towards anecdotal evidence. I don't have statistical evidence, but the anecdotal evidence right now is adding up on we have a problem with crime at large. Um uh, and it's 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 centered acutely on a lot of urban centers, but um, also when it comes to illegal immigrants, I mean we've got the two year old boy in Maryland who's now been killed by the the charges, the allegations by an illegal immigrant. We saw what happened in New York a few weeks ago where the illegal immigrants uh, attacked the police officers, and of course there's the Georgia case where the alleged killer is an illegal immigrant uh, as well. Now, I mean it was uh, the Athens Georgia mayor Joe who's saying. There's no connection. Quit drawing this connection, right, between these two issues, illegal immigration and crime. I don't know. It's pretty hard to not draw the connection, Joe. Did you see the press conference, guys, when you had protesters there calling for this guy to resign? Uh, We're talking about the mayor of Athens. Uh, And I would ask the family of Lake and Riley, you know, uh, who would be alive today if we had a secure border or at least enforce the laws on the books? I mean, her killer had already been arrested in New York City months ago. That should have meant deportation without hesitation. You saw what happened in Alabama. You had a Honduran illegal immigrant uh, arrested for raping a 14 year old girl and then stabbing a man during a knife point robbery. I mean, I hear the argument that legal citizens of this country also commit these kinds of crimes, but two wrongs don't make a right. And this is why Americans see what 7.2 million people, guys, have entered this country illegally just in the past two years alone. I mean, that's more than the total population of 35 U.S. states. It's equivalent to two years of total births in this country. Uh, Just to put it in context, only 400,000 people were apprehended during Trump's final year in office. So as far as people seeing this as a number one issue when they go to the polls in November, uh, that's a very real thing because it's not just exhausting city budgets. The fentanyl issue is obviously horrible, but this is a national security threat as well. And if it comes down to who could secure the border better, uh, Donald Trump wins this election. He wins quite e- easily, despite all the legal problems that he may have. 
And he's been proven right. That's one of those things where, like, he said whatever he said about, you know, this country's emptying out their prisons and the type of people they're putting, they're sending north, you know, and that's one of the things where everybody yells, oh, he's racist or he's a conspiracy or whatever. And he's just been proven right. Hannah, like, I mean, this is a correlation, but there was a headline this week, Venezuelan violent crime down 22%. Like, do I know that's because they're importing them all, exporting them all to the United States? I don't know. But I know that we have some guys who are from Venezuela committing crimes up here while crimes down there are on the decline. Yeah. You know, I'm here in Atlanta, some near the Athens case. And I think that it's a tragedy. Anytime there's ever a violent crime, it's a tragedy. But I think it's compounded by the fact that everybody agrees this guy should not have been here. And two things can be true at once here. It is true that immigrants, even undocumented immigrants, they do commit crimes at lower violent crimes at lower rates than U.S. citizens do. So these are still outliers. But I think that that is no comfort for people who can point to people like this man and say he should have been deported. And he absolutely should. There's no excuse for us to not be deporting people once we know that they are criminals to be enforcing the laws that we have on the books. But I actually got to go down to the border for the first time last week with the Americas for Prosperity Foundation, got to talk to some former ICE leaders and really see what was going on for myself. And I got to tell you, Will, it's a lot of security theater. You know, it was crazy. You'd see these like little spanses of walls and it would just drop off and you could easily walk around the wall. You'd see barbed wire across a landscape by the Rio Grande and then there'd be a concrete boat ramp right into the water that people would clearly just walk up. They are so overrun by the number of people that are crossing. It's not surprising whatsoever that you have a lot of people who are falling through the cracks. The vast majority of people who are trying to come here are not trying to come here and commit crimes. But when we have an immigration system running the Way that ours currently is, it makes it impossible to sort out who are the nefarious actors and who are the people who want to come here and do things the right way. So we absolutely need reform. We need it now. This is putting everybody in danger. I talked to one man who was coming here legally. He was in a facility down at the border waiting to be processed. And in the process of just trying to come here and appear before his court date, as he was given, he was kidnapped by the cartel, sold to another cartel, held for ransom, robbed of everything he had, had his life threatened unless his wife came up with $4,000. Like This is getting everybody hurt. Um, So things need to change very rapidly. I'm in agreement with Joe. I think this is a top issue for people. We cannot continue to operate in this manner whatsoever. So I'm really curious to see what policy proposals will be put forth because it's been a hot potato for too long. People need to get down to business and actually start working to solve it. Yeah. And by the way, to the you both made a point that I'd build on what Joe said. Yeah, people say Americans commit those same crimes. And then in Hannah, you said the thing, which I think sometimes people, I'm not saying you did, Hannah, but they feel the need to say, which is like most illegal immigrants don't do this. But that to me, like I put those two things together. The fact that we have violent crime here in the United States only reinforces the idea that we shouldn't be importing extra violent crime. And I don't care what percentage of the illegal immigrants are committing the crime. It should be zero. Right. Um, And I I heard you clarify violent crime because they all commit one crime. They've all got one on the sheet by arriving, you know, illegally. But violent crime, it's just like it should be zero. We can't be importing violent crime because we already have our own problem with it. I'm really fascinated what you guys are both going to say on this last story. Uh, Axios poll, most Americans cool to Christian nationalism as its influence grows. And it goes on to say that seven of ten Americans are skeptical or rejectors of Christian nationalism. Now, the big key here is, what is Christian nationalism? Like, what is the definition? What, who is, and, it, and they go on to say in the article, which I don't think can escape some editorialization here, that Christian nationalism is a set of beliefs centered around white America's, American Christianity's dominance in most aspects of the life in the United States. Um, I mean, and then they give a few examples, which... which uh, I don't know, values. This was said on MSNBC this week, believing that your natural rights come from God. You probably saw that, Joe. You said MSNBC contributors say, if you believe that your natural rights come from God, you're a Christian nationalist. That was Heidi Prisbala, I believe. And, And her argument was, yeah, if you believe your rights come from God and not Congress, you are a Christian nationalist. And this is the type of stuff. Go ahead, Will. No, I'm laughing. I can't believe. Yeah, like it's absurd oh, beyond belief. Yeah, on <laughs> national television. And, and this is what we're hearing from the left these days, that Trump supporters are uh, from a toxic cult. Or we hear terms like white nationalists, Christian nationalists. And the portrayal is that 
the number of people who fall into these groups goes into the tens of millions. Uh, Democrats can't win on issues right now. And I'm basing that not on my opinion, but on, on polling, right? Uh, on inflation, if you're just going to make it Trump versus Biden, just for argument's sake, Trump's seen as the person who could handle that better. He's seen as the person who could handle violent crime and reducing that better. We talked about the border. Obviously, he's seen to handle that better. Foreign policy, education, I could go down the line. So now it goes back to not just going after Trump on a personal level or keeping him off the ballot in places like Illinois and Maine and Colorado, but then also going after his supporters. And 74 million people voted for this guy. I don't see how there's any upside to branding people this way, especially with the Christian national stuff. I mean, it seems like Christians are the only people uh, that could be attacked and, and you get cheered for attacking it by certain sectors in this country these days. You know, part of me, Hannah, like I said to Joe just now, that's absurd beyond belief. So if you believe your natural rights came from God, you're a Christian nationalist. And at first, I just want to reject that. I'm like, that's because I'm accepting the premise that she's trying to brand somebody in a negative thing with Christian nationalism. And then I get mad at myself. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Christian nationalism. What is that? Like, they have assigned this racial ethno-state component to it. There's no racial element to either the word Christian or the word nationalist. They have attached that. And by the standard she sets, right, that if you believe your natural rights come from God, America was founded as a Christian nationalist nation. Like, look at the Constitution. It's God is all over it. The belief in natural rights as, as, a, as a gift from God, all through it. So what is she saying? Is she saying that the founders were Christian nationalists and America was founded as a nation, a Christian nation? Yeah, well, well, that's always been their end goal, right? America's founders were racist, therefore the whole Constitution's bad, therefore we need to throw it out, we need to be communists versus capitalists, we need to get rid of this idea of individual rights and be a collective. I mean, that is always their end goal. This is the latest attempt at that. Christian nationalism is a made-up term. Nationalism is a defined set of economic values that I don't adhere to. And by the way, many Christians don't either. But if you ask most Christians, and I'm down here in the South, I saw their little graph trying to say that we have Christian nationalists everywhere down here in Georgia. No, we don't. What we have are Christians who are patriotic people. And that is what they take by that term. If you ask the average person, are you a Christian nationalist? They hear, are you a Christian and do you support your nation? And they're going to say yes. They by no means subscribe to this ideology that they're trying to pin on them. There are no racial underties to it, as you pointed out. There are many people of many diversities across the world who are Christians. So trying to make Christianity this white faith is racist, honestly. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. It's My dad's the race thing, right Hannah. Now. It's I'm the sorry. race thing, and then it's this implication that um, you would replace the Constitution with the Ten Commandments, and that you would replace the American flag with a cross. But I actually think, I don't care what Axios says here, when you ask somebody a Christian nationalist, if they are one, and they reject it, they're accepting it infused with all these the things I described and the race thing you described, but what they are is, I, I, you may not be a nationalist, Hannah, and I understand you're more libertarian than I am. I'm a nationalist. I'm 100% a nationalist. Like, economically, foreign policy-wise, I'm America first, 100%. I'm also a Christian. So does that make me a Christian nationalist? They would say yes. But I, I think, again, it's a made-up term. And, and what they're trying to ascribe to it is somebody who's trying to basically put into place a religious ethno-state, which is not what Christians are doing. Do Christians vote their values at the voting block? Absolutely. Do you expect them to vote for pro-abortion stances when they hold this faith? No, but that's not them trying to force everybody to live under some kind of Christian Sharia law. I mean, that is that is so offensive to the vast exactly. majority of Christians in this country. And I just, I think it needs to be repudiated completely. It's utter hogwash. This is not happening. This is just something that they're trying to do to malign Christians who are a powerful voting bloc that they can't win over otherwise. And remember, Will, what they and did Joe, with I think Tim Tebow. The, the guy took a knee, yeah. you know, to pray yeah. uh, when he was with the Broncos, and he was labeled an extremist. Tim Tebow, one of the nicest people you'll yeah. ever meet, and I had the pleasure of doing so. A heck of a baseball player, too, by the way. Uh, and, and that's the thing. Like, suddenly <laughs> Tebow was seen as this freak playing in the NFL, and all he was doing was, hey, thanking God for, for the opportunity uh, to play a sport that he loves. Go yeah. Extremist. You're exactly right. And this is part of the, this will be the part of the playbook of saving democracy from fascism and Christian nationalism. And that's what this is for, for 2024. Uh, Joe's a big sports fan. We may have to get him on the sports episode of the Will King yes. podcast every Friday. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, look at the excitement. By the way, the, the, like Byron Donalds, 
super excited to do that too. Like every sports, um, by the way, Joe, every sports writer and personality wants to be in politics. And now I find every po- political person or news person wants to be in sports. <laughs> so right? we can all just do a big swap. <laughs> or, or they were in sports, right? And they made the jump over the politics. I, you see that a lot more. Oh, right? yeah. our friend yeah, Michelle. You see Tafoya. that every once in a while too. <laughs> We're gonna talk SEC football. All right. Oh, you will? Oh, yeah. yeah. Only me SEC too. football, best, though. Best team in... One trick pony. Yeah, me too. I, got, I'm, I root for the best team in the SEC, the Texas Longhorns. Wow. All right, Hannah Cox <laughs> and Joe Concha. Thanks for being on the Will Cain Show. We'll have you again. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Big episode. Not our longest of the week. We went an hour and a half on Tuesday. We're getting up there. By the way, did I need to get the guys in here? We'll, we'll talk about tomorrow, like what the ideal length of the Will Kane show is. Hope you emailed that in at willkaneshow at fox.com. I will see you again tomorrow. Sports, Will Kane show tomorrow. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast and Amazon Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.